This is the Home Health Revealed podcast. Hear stories from real industry leaders discussing topics affecting the ever-changing industries of home health, hospice, and palliative care. Welcome to Home Health Revealed podcast. I am your host, Mike Greenlee, and Hannah Vale sitting here right next to me. Folks, we're going to have some fun today. Hannah, what's up? Yes, we are. Well, um, I'm doing great. How are you, Mike? I'm fantastic. Good. You want to know what's going on in my life right now that's just crazy? Uh, I mean, I, crazy I guess I like have a- to say yes, right? Fads are always a thing. I always feel like if you're old enough that the fad came around again, I ha- I'm not sure you should participate in it, but I never participated in this fad. Um, but my kids are like right there. I have teens and preteens, and it's the Croc shoes. How, how are you? I feel like people feel strongly one way or another on Crocs, you know, the rubbery shoes with the holes in them. Yeah, I'm You can decorate them. Do you have that. charms for your Crocs? I don't have Crocs. You don't? No. Okay. That's actually not surprising. I don't either. I don't know. I don't understand the purpose of uh, rubber shoes. I, whatever. There, there are special editions that they're putting out. You have to like apply to get them. There was a Shrek pair wait, that came wait, out wait, recently. Wait, wait. You don't have to apply. Yeah, you have you to send in form like a store and buy Crocs? Well, yes, you can buy normal ones, but there are special edition ones. My kids have been sending me the links like, "Mom, put in my information to see if I can get these." You still have to pay for them. You don't win them, but they are there are only so many that are made. Anyways, how much do, uh, how much do Crocs cost these days? Well, I think like a normal pair is like 40 to 60 bucks at least in Branson at the Croc outlet. Okay. Okay. So there's, but a, there's an outlet there's an outlet. You know you've made it when there's an outlet. Oh my goodness. But there are special edition cowboy boot Crocs. I, I'm just mind blown. My son sent them to me yesterday. Mom, please, can I have these? Well, I just can't. Did you ever tight roll your jeans? No. What? Everybody, bottom of your <laughs> jeans, you, you, you put them together and then you flip one side over and then you do two folds. And back in the 90s, the girls wore Keds. Remember Keds? Yep, I totally had kegs. And you had to have kegs because it had the blue little thing kegs? on Kegs? Oh, you what, had kegs. kegs. Well, I did have kegs. <laughs> These are kegs. Kegs. Ke- well, yeah. So guys have kegs. No, kegs. What, what's the name of it? Did them? guys have kids? I didn't know no, guys no, no, had no, kids. No, Girls I was, did. I was back at kegs again. All right. Well, let's talk about our guest today because it's really, really an honor to have this person on our show. Um, she is the CEO of Excel in Health. She brings to the industry over 20 years of home health and hospice leadership experience. Prior to joining Excel in Health, Alicia served in various clinical and operational roles for private private equity-sponsored and public organizations. She also led clinical network integrations between post-acute service lines. Alicia assumed the role of CEO in November of 2019, which covers 23 service sites over three states. Driving clinical success, operational efficiencies, and growth have been key initiatives for Excel in to be well positioned in the current healthcare environment. We will be diving deep today into how her agency is meeting other various challenges in home health and hospice care through centralization of revenue cycle management solutions. I am thrilled to have her with us. Welcome, Alicia. Hello, thank you for inviting me today. Alicia, we're surprised you have time with, uh, you know, covering (laughs) 23 service sites over three states. So we're honored to have you. So thank you so much for making time to hang with us for about 30 minutes. Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad to be part of it. So I'm always interested. How, how, how'd you get into the business? I am actually a clinician by trade. I, you know, and I could probably be the commercial for um, the home care industry in general. I started off in acute care right out of nursing school 
and then as I started my family, I wanted something that mirrored closely to what they, my kids' schedules were and um, was introduced to home health. And I actually started as a PRN clinician in a home health agency in my hometown and then just stayed with the organization, worked my way up through management and um, just took some various paths of leadership, both internally and externally. And that's sort of what landed me here today. But Definitely a nurse at heart and understand the challenges that our clinicians are faced on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, you know, this topic is so timely in the fact that, you know, we're meeting and talking with a lot of agencies. The whole uh, word of centralization is is starting to come into play, uh, which I really enjoy having these conversations because, you know, running, not only running a company, but then how do you success successfully scale a company is, is just, just as important, right? Um, right. So, so I, I think this is, I, Hannah, did you come up with this title? Yeah, I did. Wow. You like it? I'll tell you what. Man, You're some days up. centralizing operations and the rev cycle specifically have really been a game changer for many in the healthcare industry. And as we talk about this today with you, how to drive efficiency, I'd really like you to start with telling your audience about your journey with Excellent specifically. Yes, absolutely. Um, Excellent Health is a skilled home health and hospice company that, which is private equity backed. And um, when I started in November of 2019, which is kind of an important date, um, um, as we talk along the history of that, they had just um, completed two transactions, one in Texas and one in California, and we're in the middle of an EMR conversion um, into one EMR platform. Um, they were just trying to get their hands around PDGM and understood what the acronym was meaning. And then the pandemic hit because I started November 2019. The pandemic hit early 2020. Um, but over the next two to three years, um, we continued a series of transactions and de novos during the middle of the pandemic um, to get us where we are today at 23 service sites over three states. So we were very active during you know the pandemic period internally and externally, just uh, working on the business. Yeah, that is, I mean, timing wise, you're right, very significant. So to kick things off here, let's talk about the first challenge, which is the centralized data management. Alicia, can you tell us about those complexities of managing that patient data in home health, and then really how your agency has tackled that? I'll first comment that data is really the core of our operations. It's the core of any healthcare operations, really. Um, And it needs to be reliable because we're making decisions based on the data that's provided. If the data is inaccurate, bad decisions will be made. If it's accurate, you know, good decisions will be made. But for our space of business, we we have hundreds of employees that are creating these data entries in really autonomous environments, which are the patient's home. Um, And then the staff themselves, the clinicians, are supported by one of multiple business units of those 23 business units. But if you operate in multiple states like we do, state regulations also impact the data because there's regulations that create requirements for those data entries. So consistency then becomes a challenge because you have different um, requirements in each state. How do we get the data that's useful and meaningful and use it throughout the network? Sure. So having services service areas over this large geography in each state and each business unit being in its own space of maturity, I knew from the beginning that it would be essential to centralizing our data, but it needed to be produced consistently and be reliable. So, you know, it's one thing to have a a number produced every single day, but if it's not a reliable number, then it's it's meaningless. 
So for my first goal, it really was to finish the EMR implementation and to get everyone on that same clinical platform. So um, we talk about source of truth, and I wanted one source of truth, not four or five sources of truth that could be very cumbersome to pull the data. And then once we finished that task, we uh, worked to create a centralized network of support departments for most of those administrative functions. So we centralized things like human resources, payroll, accounts payable, and all of our RCM functions which support all of our business units. So our goal is to really allow the sites to focus on the patient care. And then as we're centralizing those departments, we're able to support our care sites while using objective data to make the necessary changes within the organization. So you've made some significant changes. You know, just so the, the, the listeners understand, with all those changes that you have made just thus far, what, what kind of, what's the time frame that someone should understand that, hey, if we're going to look at, centralizing as much as you guys have centralized what's that what's that time frame look like you know we centralized in the middle of a pandemic so i think you know the one thing that worked in our favor during that period is that most of those people were already in a remote setting so we had and so it was easier i think for us to centralize in the middle of a period where everybody was not going into the office every single day or or you know we had some movement of our employees because of the effects of the of the pandemic but it's not going to be anything that happens um, naturally like in a day. We did one um, department at a time and roll that out. So we really didn't finish our, our, in our centralization process for about, it took us about a year actually to kind of get there. And I actually um, feel like that's pretty accelerated. That. Like a year is. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you? No, I think that's fantastic. Now, I, you, you know, the, the thing about the, the centralization, you know, is it, number one, it's, it's not as easy as what everyone thinks. Um, and you're right on with with the with the with the data part of it, um, and I love where we're going with this because we're we're tying this to revenue cycle management, which is dear to my heart. I love I love talking about uh, revenue cycle management. There's this misconception out there that billing is easy. You click a button, and boy, it just works itself out, and all of a sudden you're, you you get paid, which um, we know that's not really the truth. And you got to really dive underneath the hood to figure out, hey how's this thing operating? How's it working? How's all this, this, this going out, out and about how are we getting paid? How fast all that jazz. But um, how does an agency handle all the complexities of billing in home health? Well, I tell you, you, you hit the nail on the head, you know, billing in home care is not easy. It's, it's been quite a challenge to be quite honest with you. And I think specifically, you know, in our space of business, as it relates to other healthcare entities, in, in particular, there's so many variables that are needed um, to appropriately build a claim. Do you have a face-to-face? Do you have your OASIS completed? Um, are all your visits back from the physician? Those sort of things. So it's not as simple as clicking one button or just sending out one invoice. Um, for our space of business at Excel and our area, one area of the revenue cycle that just continues to gain more importance within our organization is the shift of payer mix from the traditional Medicare to the various replacement plans because each plan has its own additional requirements that are unique to that plan and then they have to be met. Not to mention every one of them have a shortened window for timely filing um, and each one is different. So some some contracts expire in 60 days, some in 90, 120, 180 and so forth. And as I look back on it, um, when I first started home care and the majority of our clients were in that Medicare Part A space, um, we only had a handful of commercial or Medicare Advantage plans. It wasn't as meaningful to us then as it is now when you have, you know, for the market, 
you know, at least a 50-50 split, if not more on the Medicare Advantage side. So as we're shifting that mix, we're taking pretty significant haircuts and reimbursements for all of those patients. So it's incredibly imperative that we capture every dollar for the care that we are providing and that we do it appropriately so that we can just continue to sustain those cash flows. Um, we centralized our RCM functions. Um, I mentioned that earlier, and we're just trying to automate as much of those billing functions as possible. So um, we know if we're already taking a haircut on this book of business, we can't um, engage a lot of administrative resources to manually um, do checks on the claims. We need to be able to automate that with some technology. Um, but the billing department really can't effectively do that if they're working in silos. So there needs to be some clear process path from start to finish with the ownership of each step in the process. And there also has to be clear communications with the operators with appropriate escalation as they're needed. So there should be very good visibility about how many claims are held by a payer type and what's preventing those claims from just clearing appropriately. Hey, Alicia, when you, when you centralize that side of the business, was there something that you saw that really surprised you um like you know like maybe some claims weren't going through is there anything that was like the mm -hmm. what, what i call the eyelid tattoo i think um when we're looking at that side of the business it's in our group of facilities the, the leadership is almost always a clinician and the clinician um sometimes has a hard time transitioning the clinical brains to the business or the operating brain and so they're there to focus on the patient care and the billing just becomes secondary to um, their task. And so what happens by nature of that is that, you know, you have periods where you're not processing claims timely or um, they want to make sure that every I is dotted and every T is crossed from a clinical level before the, the claim is eligible to be processed at a billing level. So when you have a team that's just focused exclusively on billing and they have objectives, billing goals every single day that they're doing, um, there's an automation that naturally occurs and um, you know, you're gonna be consistent in what your process is doing. So if you were ever challenged by a third party to explain your process, you can clearly articulate, this is our process one, two, three, but then you also get some efficiencies by centralizing that as well. So. Next up, I kind of want to shift gears and talk a little bit more about compliance management, which mm -hmm. you've done a great job leading into. Home health agencies really face a variety of regulations. How does your agency manage that compliance piece? Oh, thanks. Um, compliance is is indeed a hurdle. And as you mentioned, you know, the, this can focus on compliance just continues to grow with our current regulatory environment. And it's really um, escalated on the list of priorities of due diligence when we look at um, other agencies and at some point when other agencies look at us. So it's very much um, on the forefront of our minds of um, the steps that we do to take to build a strong compliance program. Optically, as um, clinicians um, historically have had um, some aversion to compliance, they uh, understand that that's the police of the, of the agency. And I really... Um, think of that differently. Those, that's the team that's going to work hard to protect the organization and then have the agencies back in the middle of conflict or question. So my first hire when I started um, with Excelling was to hire that compliance officer. They had been doing some technical pieces outside of the, of the um, organization through a contract vendor. And we, I really felt like it was important to bring that person in, establish a robust compliance program. And that department manages our clinical compliance, 
regulatory compliance and our billing compliance, along with some other features that they do within the organization. But we start compliance um, at Excellent on day one of a, an employee's um, journey with us. And, and the reason why we do that is because we want to communicate to them that it's very important to us as a company and therefore it should be very important to them. So, um, you know, what that allows that to happen just from day one is this natural engagement with our employees, with the compliance team that builds into a genuine partnership. So we can continue to grow, create scale within the organization as and do that with, you know, limited risk. You know, before we jump over to streamlining, I always, always like talking about streamlining workflows. You know what I'm saying, Hannah? That's right. Yep. Uh, for some <laughs> of the listeners that maybe don't have the uh, the um, revenue, or maybe they're not in a position yet to get a compliance officer, what type of advice mm -hmm. could you give to an agency saying, "Hey, you don't have this yet, but here's how you could go about it in managing to the best of your ability"? Because compliance is—I mean, that's a mountaintop, right? You know, what would you say to I them? I would say to them, if they're the leader of their organization, to really um, make sure that they're brushing up on what the regulations um, have for their particular state and the business unit that they're doing. Um, if they're not in a position to bring that in-house, there are some opportunities where they can use some trusted advisors through third parties um, to be able to do that for them. Um, and you, they have a, a nice reputation to be able to do that and to seek guidance. Um, and then just offshoot um, some of those challenges within, within that third party, be able to create the structure that builds both um, scalable function, but um, not risk as you build your scalable function. And so these people that are experts in doing this every single day, they just become a good partnership to the company. So I'd probably start it off with a third party opportunity and then bring it in as you grow. Yeah. And then as you, as you grow, one of the things that you quickly find is, okay, now we got to start streamlining. Right. Because one thing you, you mentioned about taking haircuts on, on payers or uh, mm -hmm. and, and we know that we've got to get paid for every single dollar. And because, you know, absolutely, you, can't, you don't want to hire unless you really need to hire, because, again, you got to you got to really manage your costs. So when you talk about streamlining the workflow, can you share how mm -hmm. your agency has standardized and streamlined workflows to improve overall efficiency? Absolutely. Um, you know, we're working in this environment today, you know, where there's dramatic um, inflation and as well as staff shortages. So when, you know, an area that we spend a lot of focus on is um, our administrative um, streams and, and the standardization that we can get from that. We know we're going to have to pay our clinicians, whatever the rate is that's um, at the market. But if there are any efficiencies that we can kind of bring out that will help us either through a staffing perspective for our back office or automation. Um, our agency um, redefined processes to maximize efficiency and then track the patient's progress effectively. But we're constantly evaluating that process. I think it's fair to say if you, once you establish that, you have to also constantly evaluate that to make sure it's, it's flowing the way it was intended. And then as technology has been introduced, um, it, it creates a point for you to continue to evaluate that process too, and then just continue to wring out those efficiencies as much as you can. An example I'd probably share was with, in our intake workflow. Um, it's a lot of task-driven um, data entry pieces, but it kicks off every other workflow stream um, that we have in our patient care space. So during that process, 
we're trying to reduce those duplicative entries and the time-consuming pieces so that we can wring out more productivity from our intake team, and but yet not creating more risk of not getting paid because we've created an entry in the patient's file regarding pay or face-to-face that needed to be done. Yeah, and when you're improving processes, at the same time you're changing mm-hmm you know, workflows, which, you know, some people struggle with change. Did, did you get any pushback yes. and, and was it, was there any kind of pushback that surprised you from your, from your team internal? I think, um, you're always going to have pushback because people are naturally, um, fearful of change. And so I think, you know, one of the things that we, um, exercise was this level of transparency within our organization to say, you know, for example, we want to be able to drive more intake volume in our intake department, but we want to be able to do that without creating more errors in the patient's chart. So this is what where our plan is to be able to do. We want to go from A to B. And then I created some buy-ins within those departments. Um, there's natural leaders within every organization so that they could give us feedback on things that would potentially work or not work. But then I just worked really hard to turn those people into the champions of the change rather than the champion of the adversity within in that change. And so in doing that, being transparent, yet creating some engagement with them, it really softened that and allowed us to escalate that that um, faster. Um, I will say that to you on one hand. On the other hand, when we interview people within the organization, one of the things we talk about is that, you know, healthcare is dynamic and it's always in a state of change. And so as the industry changes, the regulations changes, that forces change within the, the company in general. So if there are a person who doesn't ever like to change in any capacity, they may not be a good fit for our company because we're going to be one that's going to be moving pretty quickly. I think, you know, you can kind of see that in the changes that we've made recently, and they've got to be okay to be able to do that. So one of the things you said earlier that really stuck out to me was that source of truth um, when you're Mm -hmm. streamlining. And I just, I don't know that we highlight the importance of this when people are centralizing and trying to streamline processes, but choosing that one source where you're not doing multiple entries, like you said, you're kind of diminishing that duplicity. You have Mm -hmm. to choose where it's coming in and make sure that the data entry is is thorough because when it comes to reporting and the things that you need to make changes, right, to make the decisions to make the change, you've got to have data that comes out that's quality and you can only get data out based on what you put in. The source, of tr- the source of truth part was the part that I really appreciate. You know well, it. I'm just, I'm thinking about all these places that we talk to, right? That yep. they have some things here and some things there and they work in different systems. If you don't have that central, you have things in too many different places, you can't have good data. Yeah, Alicia, you did say that really well because mm-hmm. I always tell people process leadership works until it doesn't. And then my team's like, is that all you got mm-hmm. for us? And I was like, yeah, that's it. I, that's as good as it gets. I know this is something that's important to her because the conversation that she and I had was about real-time reporting. So, Alicia, can you explain the importance of real-time data in your decision-making and how your agency utilizes that? So uh, incredibly important. And as we talk about change within the industry, it becomes even more important because the change is um, occurring at a much rapid pace than it did when I first entered, you know, over 20 years ago into into healthcare. 
Um, in my course of just my career over time, I can't tell you how many times I sat at a board meeting or a business review meeting and um, the most updated KPIs that were available were 30 to 60 days old. And at the time that that was considered to be timely um, reporting. But today with the rapid changes that we have, we just can't afford to function that way any longer. We need to be able to make real-time decisions and update trends um, in real time. If we're gonna be making changes in our process, I don't wanna know in 90 days if it was effective. I wanna know within the week or a few days if, if we need to make adjustments in that process before we get too far down. For our business at Excelling, we actually use KPI dashboards and that are updated daily based on the um, agency's activities. And these are automated dashboard reporting. So based on the, the data entries that are made, um, at the clinical level or operational level, those are automatically updated. And they can be stacked, the data can be stacked or sorted to get a full picture, or you can kind of drill as granular as you want to get um, at a branch level for some of those um, specific items. Um, I will tell you that real-time reporting is a, an, an essential function, but you also have to have a team that's going to actually use the report. So just because you produce a report, if they're not going to be able to direct change, based on the report data, then it becomes ineffective. So the other component that needs to be um, identified with that is the training of the staff to interpret the data and to be able to take react, um, correct action on that data based on um, the information that's provided. So for example, if I were a branch manager, I would wanna know on a daily basis, how many admissions has the agency done within the organization and is it you know, to moving toward a target how many discharges have we done? Um, what's the productivity of my team? Without going individually one by one, you need to be able to roll that up and get some good visibility so that you can make some good real-time decisions. Are there a couple KPIs? You mentioned KPIs. I'm sure you have several. Mm -hmm. um, when you wake mm -hmm. up in the morning, grab your cup of Java, are, are there a couple of KPIs that you really look at every single day? Yes, um, we look at um, admission volume every day and then we sort it by payer mix to make sure that we're um, in line with that. And that rolls into census activity. Um, we, we compare admissions to discharges just to make sure that um, the increase in admission should drive extra census. And if it's not, we wanna understand why. Um, we look at billing every single day. How much have we um, billed um, that day? What was our cash collections of that day? and we look at productivity for our full-time caregivers. Those are the ones that I probably touch and you know throughout the day, but every single day we're looking at it. And on your RCM team, do you have certain KPIs that each revenue specialist needs to meet on a daily basis or is it weekly or monthly or um, um, they have daily billing goals within the department, um, and we sort that in two different categories. So the volume of claims, because we know that there are steps that have to be done, whether you're getting, you know, $175 for that invoice or if you're getting $1,750, it's basically the same step that has to be created. So that helps us to identify, you know, the work volume within that um, department, but then we also look at dollars. So what's the total dollars billed for, for that day? Um, they also look at um, claims rejected. So if they're having to rework claims, how many of those that they're trying to do, and then we wanna do that as a percentage. So we looked at, when we look at unbilled AR as a percentage of our total revenue, we wanna, we have targets, we wanna make sure that we're below that target. Um, but then we're constantly looking at, you know, are we having consistent billing cash day knowing that that's a 21 to 30 day turnaround on collection of that cash, um, it's not 
in our best interest to just do all of our drilling on one day of the week. We want to do it every single day that we're uh, operating our business. Yeah, for sure. Now, of course, you guys wouldn't be in business if you didn't have patience. And, and so I want to, I want to talk a little bit about, okay, you're like, uh, that'd be hundred percent accurate, Michael. Um, <laughs> that's, a, that's probably the smartest thing I've said all day, huh, Hannah? Um, but no, I, I say that to say, cause patient engagement is, is critically important when you've centralized or what centralized tools and features does your agency use to enhance that patient engagement and, and, and how, how does that impact the patient experience? Um, I think, you know, historically, um, you know, patient engagement was thought to be something that was only at the branch level or at the individual bedside level between that field nurse and the patient. And because of that, it was very difficult to wrap your arms around consistent um, patterns or um, aberrancies that you would find within the organization. And quite frankly, when you're looking at your operational activities and where they uh, list on your priorities, I don't feel that patient engagement has been given enough credit historically in our space of business. Now, with that being said, um, I think there's a huge shift to focusing on that, um, particularly as it relates to probably value-based payment, because now it's going to start translating, you know, into some of that reimbursement going forward. But for us, it really needs to be at the forefront of everything we do, because to your point, we can't survive if we don't have patients. And so we need to get good feedback from them on the things that we're doing right, um, the things that we can improve, but then also setting some sort of um, opportunity for that patient to continue to be involved in their care journey instead of someone just dictating to them a list of things to do and not do um, to um, get their goals met. So for us, um, when a lot of people were pro probably reducing resources um, uh, related to patient experience or patient outcomes, we actually doubled down on that within our organization. And we did that for multiple reasons, even beyond the patient experience side, we wanted that to flow over to employee experience. And so as we're looking for that, how can we improve the employee experience at the same time as the patient experience and that work um, feasibly with the company? Um, naturally, as we were doing that, we centralized that. We started up off as a centralization function, so there really wasn't an opportunity to do it specifically at the branch level. So I think we got a win there. But we um, implemented two different practices. One of those is a um, triage service, actually, that um, makes it available for the, the patients to call after hours and on the weekends, which is really the greatest time for rehospitalization. So we feel pretty strongly that if the patient that has a question or is in need, if they can actually talk to a person um, and get a response rather than a recording or an answering service, um, the likelihood of them going to the hospital is drastically reduced and they feel like that they're being heard. That's the most important thing. Someone actually picked up the phone and heard and listened to what I had to say. Um, that triage team works off of a, you know, a list of a formulary of items um, in order to respond appropriately within the care plan and the orders for the patient. But they actually do a callback after that call to make sure everything was settled. They escalate that to a field clinician to do a visit if it's necessary. But we've actually seen some pretty good improvement um, in our responses from our patient satisfaction surveys and on the engagement, just knowing that they had somebody available. And I think it's a requirement that you have that available, but we didn't stress it strongly enough, you know, with them, that opportunity. The second thing we did was um, pre, um, launch an app-based patient engagement um, system that feeds into our telehealth system. So our telehealth team actually manages this program. 
and it creates a path for directing messages and audio and visual communication with those patients. We're actually using that to support our patients in between visits um, and then alert the program managers of those patients who may be at risk of additional interventions that can be made. So um, we can push the written and video patient education through the app. So it's just another method of engagement with the patients and their family members that they can stay connected with the agency and it gives us some more visibility if they're having some difficulty so that we can intervene timely. I want to go back to claims if I can, just for a second, because as you were talking and it just, my, my brain works that way. Um, from a, from a CEO perspective, uh, with an agency of a company your size, is there a claim when that claim hasn't paid? Is there a day that you say, Hey, this is unacceptable. Yes. So we are tracking out by payer uh, specifically to the payer level, what the anticipated turnaround time should be when the claim is released until payment is made. If it, falls um, beyond that trigger point. So for example, we expect payment from um, XYZ um, uh, payer in 15 days. It's gonna be a quick payer. And it gets to be beyond the 15 day mark. There is an intervention that's made between the agency and the payer to inquire why that payment has not been made and when we, when we expect the payment to be made. So you have to be able to track it. It can't be assumed that, um, you're, um, you know, that they're going to pay exactly on that same day. And sometimes if there's technical issues or there was rest days at the payer source, and I, I, that creates a little bit of a lag into the cash collection. But I think you have to be extremely focused on chasing that cash collection, even beyond the submission of the claim. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm so surprised that in the number of agencies that we have conversations with, either at conferences or just, you know, like, like we're talking here, I, I see their aging AR and I see so many dollars past 90, mm -hmm. 90 days. And I just keep thinking to myself, mm -hmm. how did it get like this? Because that revenue is so critical. And, you know, mm -hmm. you talk about and, centralization. And you've, already paid the, you've already paid all your bills off of it, right? Now That's you right. Collect the cash. Yeah. So. But, but I look at that all the time and I'm like, man, how did it even get here? You know, where, where it's, mm -hmm. you know, 90 days, 120 days, 180 days. And mm -hmm. um, I, I just think it's one of those things that's really critically important to be managing on a daily basis. Uh, and follow-up is key. I tell you what, man, you just can't bill out a claim and just hope to God it pays. You got to be following up. You got to be mm -hmm. proactive with it. And uh, you got. And I think there's a tendency that, um, you know, we, we call them short pays within the company where we, you know, we have a contracted rate for a certain amount, but the payer submits payment for something that's a much reduced rate um, there. And I think there's an optic of, you know, it's on us as the company to identify that and to call out the payer to say, hey, you know, you owed me, you know, $175 for this visit, but you only paid me $150. Where's my other $25? You know, I know that that's just a, a very granular example, but it's the same process because, you know, there's errors that can be made on the payer side, but it's up to us to identify those and then call them back out to the payer so that we can get the appropriate payment that we're due. Do you guys have a process where one of your strategic plans is to build relationships with these payers or contacts within these payers? Do you, do you Absolutely. Guys and we actually have a designated person who helps to do that. And we do it from um, both on a contracted level so that we can hopefully negotiate better terms of the agreements um, that benefit the patients and then ultimately also um, benefit the, the agency. But then also, you know, from a payment level to understand, is there any 
um, fast tracking of our claims, for example, that we could do that may generate a, a faster return of that cash back to the company. And have you seen significant improvement by using that resource and, and come up with that resource to say, hey, this is this is important? I do because I, you know, the one thing that I'm, you know, learned in working with them is that those payers also have their own challenges that they're trying to work around. Um, and the home health space is so unique in the function that it provides to the patients and the way that it's billed that they often don't have a lot of those um, knowledge or insight to create some sort of path for payment back to, to those payers. They're used to paying hospitals and doctors. Um, home health agencies, and you want to get paid episodically, what is that about? And um, we don't even know how to measure that. So I think for us, um, we've been able to kind of start, you know, having some conversations about, you know, if we can set up the agreement to do this, for example, episodically, and there's not a pre-authorization required, we can see your patient faster, they're not going to result back to the hospitalization, and it's really not costing you, the payer, any more money to be able to do that. In fact, it's saving you money. But I think you have to have some sort of rapport with that company to start those conversations and then back that up with good data. Um, so I think, you know, those are just important as you're negotiating the terms with those payers. Yeah, no, we've had multiple conversations here recently about that, about the importance of those relationships and the data. I mean, those two things together. Mm -hmm. Something I want to point out with centralization is that it really allows reducing duplication at the branch level and then helps reduce your repetitive administrative tasks. So really mm -hmm. that saves both time and money. How has centralization allowed agencies like yours to scale your operations and then be more effective in the marketplace? Well, one of the benefits of having a multi-site operation is really the ability to scale. Um, and then centralization just by nature of, you know, its function brings scalability through consistency, but it also reduces the overhead. Um, that, that helps start create the margins that are ideal, you know, for the company to start ringing out more of that as you um, have higher volume. And it then allows those uh, local sites to, like I said earlier, just focus on taking care of the patient. For us, we depend heavily on centralization um, as we try to grow our organization. And those centralized um, functions are really the core um, building blocks of what we do. So, we, we know we have a level of confidence that those are true practices, they're consistent, they're the most efficient that we can provide within the organization. And so as we're um, creating opportunities for de novos or we're assimilating an acquisition, we're really leaning on the backs of those centralized departments to kind of set the standard and also provide some support back to those branches where really in a time they're either working shorthanded if it's a de novo or they have a lot of fear around that process because it's something that's different from what they had done. So at the same time, we're building this scalability and trying to ring out some efficiencies. Those departments also have to be in, in what I would say is a true servant to those branch locations by bringing on um, some um, additional communication and lines of transparency about what is this department doing and how much have we done for this location today and then giving that back to that branch manager so they have some confidence that that process is still continuing to be followed. So um, I would say there needs to be a report mechanism to those locations um, back and forth on what those activities are doing. Um, but then just building that line of trust with those branches that the process that's in place is, is a tried and true process and that it's effective. 
thank you, Alicia, for sharing all of these insights today. It's really been, I think this has been a great conversation. I think there's takeaways, so many takeaways that people can use. Um, But before we sign off here, will you tell the listeners how they can get in touch with you or learn more about Excellin? Absolutely. Um, You can visit our website. It's www.excellin.com. Or you can email me directly. My email address is amar, A-M-A-R-R, at excellent.com. Well, Alicia, thank you so much. Again, I know you're super busy, um, but this has been this has been a great podcast. I love hearing different perspectives from CEOs that are running just really dynamic organizations. Um, and so first, I want to compliment you on your leadership um, and taking time to, to share with us some of your thoughts and yeah. ideas of how you've um, really centralized um, the agency in a several different areas, but particularly into the revenue cycle management. So I just thank you so much for sharing all those insights and, and information with us. I, I've had a great time um, today. So thank you again for the invitation and um, look forward to, you know, um, connecting with any of your listeners on any questions that they may have. Yeah. Last question I have. Do, do you think I sound like Matthew McConaughey? All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. Don't, all right. Stro- don't stroke his ego, uh, Alicia. Good. I the real it. question is, do you own Crocs? <laughs> I own a set of Crocs. However, I my youngest child is a senior in high school, and on her first day of school for her senior year, she wore Cars-themed Crocs to school, and she continues to wear them almost every single day, yeah. whether they match her outfit or not. Mm-hmm. It's a awesome. thing. Yeah, so I get, we're, it's a thing. We're on the Cars bandwagon for sure. I mean, the Crocs bandwagon for sure. So um, it's a thing. You're right, Kenneth. Uh,